0: Today's interview is brought to you by YCharts. For a free trial and 15% off your subscription, go to go.ycharts.com forward-guidance. Very happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Dave Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research. Dave, great to have you on Forward Guidance at last. Welcome.
1: Well, it's uh, it's great to be on, uh, and uh, I love the term Forward Guidance since uh we have a central bank and a consensus that loves to look at uh, backward-looking data. So uh,
0: forward guidance it is. Backward-looking data, but they do like to give a little hint every now and then about what is to come for interest rates. Did you glean anything from last week's uh, Jay Powell's speech at Jackson Hole about what might be to come? More rate, rate hikes, potential for cuts in 2024. What do you think?
1: Well, I, I think that we're at a far different point place today than we were a year ago uh, when the funds rate was considerably lower than it is today. And Jay Powell was talking about having to inflict pain on the household and business sector. Uh, But I think that right now, I mean, we could debate if they're going to raise rates again in November. Uh, The market is, you know, basically 50-50 on that. I, I don't think they're going in September and the market's not really priced for it. So they they either go in set in November, uh I believe the meetings uh November the first. It seems like a lifetime away. Uh they'll be data dependent. Uh I'm thinking that the data will not play ball uh for another rate hike, but you know, this is actually the uh the tightest Fed policy we've had since the Volcker period in nineteen eighty one. So you 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 and there's people on the Fed that still wanna raise rates. So uh He's got to uh, walk a fine line uh, now that there's some division. Uh, obviously, you have uh, Goolsby and, and you have Harker on one side, let's pause. You have Mester and Collins, no, let's keep on going. Uh, so there's a chance, obviously, they can go one more time, but I don't know if that's the really big story. The really big story is what happens next year. Uh, the story behind what happened with the bond market um, in the past couple of months really was about the reset of fed expectations. uh the fed if you go back a few months after uh silicon valley bank and some of the other ones that failed, uh we were supposed to get rate cuts, you know, starting in the fourth quarter. that's not going to be happening. so the question is whether or not even though the market's priced it has pushed out uh the fed rate cuts for next year. um they haven't totally abandoned the view that the Fed will be cutting rates next year. And so the Fed's got this mantra right now higher for longer, higher for longer, higher for longer. Uh, but then again, you know, we're just about to finish August, head into September, and uh, even 2024 right now is a long ways away. Uh, so the market stubbornly thinks that the Fed has overdone it. They'll be forced to cut rates. Um, so the question is really going to be will the Fed do Less, more, or the same as what the markets got priced in right now. That's that's what's most important. Whether or not they move one more time, you know, to me, that's just um, you know noise at this
0: particular point in time. So you said that you don't think the economic data will play ball. I think this is this is until November. What did you mean by that? And then you know, where do you think the economic data will, will be in next year, where cuts could be on the table?
1: What we don't know is what does the American consumer really look like. Uh, when we don't have the full impact of these um, stimulus checks that were mailed out a couple of years ago, over $2 trillion, but it was a gift that kept on giving. And this is where uh, I went awry in my own forecast was because I, I was superimposing the historical record as to how do consumers behave when they get free money from the government. And historically, they save half and they spend half. Uh, I was thinking that they might even save more than half because two-thirds of American households went into the pandemic without enough savings to to get by three months of vital economic activity. And here we were locked down. I thought that was going to be a memory that would be seared on the proletariat. But what I failed to take into account uh, was YOLO. You only live once. You know, FOMO to the equity market is YOLO to Main Street. Uh, Anger spending. And so what happened is that every penny, every penny of the stimulus checks got spent. But what I'm saying is that the San Francisco Fed, and they put out the best research, uh, wrote a report last month showing that the last vestiges of the Energizer Bunny, otherwise known as the Biden Budget Buster, from that. uh, uh, stimulus checks to everybody, uh, that that basically expires the impact at the end of September. And of course, what we know about uh, September is that it's the same month where, and look, we've had this in place for a while, the debt service relief plan. Uh, and so all of a sudden, all that money that would have been spent on fun and games among the young people who spend, uh, who have a very high spending propensity, well, now they're going to be siphoning that into servicing their debt. So um, I know everybody talks about you know that uh, we have uh, the onshoring phenomenon, the Chips Act, uh, the uh, inflation the Inflation Reduction Act, all these subsidies and so on and so forth, and capital formation for manufacturing. I mean, you amortize that over a long period of time. Uh, infrastructure spending, or the sort of stuff people talk about, that's providing juice to GDP. Uh, you know, It's like talking about FDR's New Deal in the 1930s and the New Deal was a funky deal and we built a lot of bridges and uh, transportation networks and dams and highways and theme parks. But it wasn't uh, FDR's industrial policy that ended the Great Depression, it was World War II. So these people that talk about fiscal stimulus in the way of the industrial policy, um, you have to amortize that impact over at least a decade. Uh, but for the here and now, in terms of what it means for the consumer, uh, that's top of mind. What happens now that all the stimulus is worn out and wearing out at a time when uh, jobs are not declining, but the pace of job creation is slowing. And you usually go from strong, uh, strong labor market to cool, and then to cold. And what's really top of mind for me? I know the first question was about Jackson Hole last week. That was the big event of the week. But really, was that the big event of the week, or? was what the retailers told us last week. The big event of the week was what uh, Macy's had to say and Kohl's and Lowe's and Foot Locker, uh, Nordstrom, all of them, uh, weak sales, weak traffic, consumers trading down and very downbeat guidance. And on top of that, uh, a surge in consumer credit card delinquencies. And that's really important because you're starting to see that the banks are tightening up their standards for credit cards, like it's nobody's business. At a time when people are applying for more credit cards, the banks are rejecting the applications, and that was responsible. You know, we talked about the student loan program; that was important. We talked about uh, the um, the stimulus checks. And the lagged impact that had, that is really what, th- what's thwarted so far the fed's efforts to rein in aggregate demand. Um, but that's coming to an end. But you see, even as those stimulus checks for many people were already being terminated in the past year, not for everybody, but for a lot of people, what were they doing as an antidote? They were tapping their credit cards like it was nobody's business. 20% of the growth in consumer spending in the past year came from the credit card. So all these things are going to be changing in the next couple of months. And I think we're going to be talking about, we will not be talking about consumer resilience anymore. When people say to me, what will we be talking about in the next few months? I just say, I'll tell you what we will not be talking about. We will no longer be talking about consumer resilience. That's 70% of aggregate demand. And as that weakens in the next several months and quarters, the Fed's, is not gonna have a choice but to go on hold and then invariably interest rates are cyclical. I don't know what the pushback is, uh, what this whole thing about higher for longer is. The higher for longer thesis would tell you that interest rates aren't cyclical, which is ridiculous. Interest rates are cyclical and and they will move with the economy. Uh, So this notion higher for longer, that, that, that doesn't play in Peoria as far as I'm concerned. It's a nice little refrain. Because uh, the Fed doesn't want the markets to get ahead of themselves, but the Fed will be cutting rates next year, or maybe even by the end of this year. I still think that's the principal risk.
0: The logic behind high, uh, higher for longer, I think, is that the economy is very hot. And so if the economy is, is, is slowing down from a very high level of nominal GDP growth, then you know a, a slowdown from 9% nominal growth to 7% nominal growth, that's still 7% nominal growth. How much do you think the economy is, is going to slow down if, if if we're just talking about growth?
1: Look, look, we could have been talking about you know it reminds me of, you know we could have been talking about the same seven percent nominal growth uh, in the summer of two thousand and eight, you know when uh, when oil prices were one hundred and fifty dollars and we're talking about global decoupling, which was ridiculous, and the Chinese the Chinese super cycle. And uh, back then, higher for longer, if you remember, was about commodities. We are in a secular uptrend in commodities. So uh, higher for longer, you could have applied with your nominal GDP growth. The question is not where is nominal GDP growth today? The question is where where is it going to be a year from now? Where is it going to be two years from now? Now, this is just called fun with figures. But once again, the San Francisco Fed I think I mentioned it before, they are the best Fed when it comes to research. Maybe not
0: bank regulation,
1: but but when it comes to research, yeah. (laughs) Top dog, yeah, well, okay, we can talk about leadership another time, but um, top dog when it comes to research Uh, and they traced out the lags of uh, the rental components of the CPI. What else do you need to know if you want to try and forecast oil or forecast food, um, but um, over 30% of the uh, CPI are the rental components, 40% of the core are the rental components. So you get the rental components right and everything else will fall into place. Now, we already know in real time from uh, whatever data you want to look at, uh, I look at the apartment list, uh, rental data and season adjusted, uh, they've been deflating now for months on a month over month basis uh, and the year-over-year has actually gone slightly below zero. Uh, but because the CPI includes all the lags from the leases that were signed 12 and 24 36 months ago, uh, it lags in both directions. If you remember that when all the inflationists came out and they were right a few years ago, um, the rental components uh, were still extremely low and were providing this false glow of low inflation. Next thing you know, uh, we had 9% inflation in the summer of uh, 2022. Uh, And now in the opposite direction, inflation is staying artificially high because of these rental components, but they haven't fully matched what's happening in reality. But uh, at some point, the previous leases fall out of the CPI data and the deflation that we've been seeing for the past several months will show more forcefully in the future data. So the San Fran Fed tells us something very important, which is that by this time next year, uh, the rental components, 30% of the CPI, are gonna be either zero year-over-year or fractionally negative. So if you just basically take the prevailing trend in non-rental inflation from the CPI and you just assume it does nothing, uh, and we could argue, what does food do? What does energy do? I Let's just say that we just stay in the range of the stuff that is non-rent. Inflation is going to be well below 1% this time next year. So if inflation is going to be less than 1%, how does nominal GDP growth stay at 7 unless you think real GDP is going to be 6%? Which Well, the Atlanta Fed thinks real GDP is going to be 6%. Yeah. 5, well, 5.8, I think. So real GDP might be like uh, cl- close to zero. And uh, you could have inflation at 1%. You could have nominal GDP down to 1%. Um so all these people that say today oh well we'll look where bond yields are relative to nominal GDP but all these markets are forward looking uh your your show's called forward guidance so the problem with forward guidance and talking about nominal GDP is nominal GDP if you're talking about today is a four quarter trailing trend the question is where's that four quarter trailing trend going in the next year and it's going to be sharply lower it's going to catch a lot of people by surprise
0: can you opine on the Atlanta Fed uh, now cast, I think for third quarter GDP is going to be 5.8%, 5.9% for real real GDP. How do you think that they arrived at that figure? Why do you do disagree with it? I presume you disagree with it. And then there's another Fed model that you, I think, probably uh, think is more accurate. What the
1: Atlanta Fed does is they take the most recent uh, numbers and they superimpose. So they'll superimpose uh, July and August and into September. So you know, we had that ripping number, the 0.7 on retail sales. Uh, and that was when they really took their numbers up. But we're going to be up 0.7, 0.7, 0.7. And, um, and, and by the way, I, I question that 0.7 because, um, uh, you know, what's interesting is that the raw data, the non seasonally smooth data for June and July was the weakest we've had in the past five years. So it was a very aggressive seasonal factor, but the Atlanta Fed is just basically robotic, automated, and it just builds an assumption that what you see in one month you'll get the next two months. The last time we had Atlanta Fed this high a couple of years ago, uh was calling for six percent growth. I forget exactly which quarter it was, um, we ended up with two percent. So I think people look maybe a little too closely at Atlanta Fed uh and um it could be a bit of a a bit of a, a tripwire here. Uh, the St. Louis Fed, which you talked about, is down is at .5, and uh, just a different methodology. Uh, but it's a .5. Atlanta Fed is at almost six, as you mentioned. But where is the consensus of economists? Because the consensus of economists, they're not robots. Uh, they're not machines. And uh, the economists are obviously knowing that. The 0.7 for July in retail sales was a bit of an outlier and not likely to be repeated. The consensus, I think for third quarter is 1.7. So uh, yeah, you got a a massive uh, discrepancy. Uh, A lot of people like to focus on Atlanta Fed. What they don't realize is that at this stage of the cycle towards when the final numbers come out, it could be, it's gonna be completely different. But you see Atlanta Fed got it right last time around. We got 2.4 for second quarter, they nailed 2.4, so therefore Atlanta Fed must know what's going on. Um, but I think there's a danger in extrapolating these numbers, especially when we know that we are getting hit with downward revisions to the employment data, right? Like, again, we talked about Jackson Hole last week. I talked about, to me, the, the big news was the, what the retailers had to say, not just about their numbers, but about their outlook um but here we had um you know the uh the uh um the the census numbers the uh CQEW data coming out showing that employment in the year to march of this year was revised down 306,000 and so what that's telling you about revisions what is telling you about revisions to income uh, and production that employment was actually a lot weaker. I'm looking at the data. We're getting a fresh non-farm payroll number at the end of this week. Uh, and everybody will be trading off the number. Everybody will be talking about the number. And it's a fictitious number in the sense that that might be all we've got right now, but non-farm payrolls have been revised lower each month this year. Every month this year, non-farm payrolls have been revised down by a cumulative 278,000. That's almost 50,000 a month. And everybody's going to be trading off non-farm payrolls like it's the holy grail. But we are seeing steady downward revisions. It comes to, you know, you're coming before about the economy is hot. I, I, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure it's as hot as a lot of people think it is. And I'll tell you right now, how could it really be hot when you're taking a look at what the retailers had to say uh, about volumes, foot traffic, sales, uh, and trading down, trading down. The reason why the dollar stores, say in Walmart are grabbing market share is because even wealthy people and rich people are going to areas that have more promotions and discounts and lower prices. So there's a real shift as well towards trading down. I don't know how you build an inflation scenario out of that. You know, I'm looking at the bank data. You got bank life, bank deposits, negative year on year bank assets negative year on year, the banks are getting smaller. Banks are getting smaller, and they're tightening credit in a credit-driven economy, and um, we're supposed to
0: squeeze inflation out of that. How? I I guess the one thing that's remaining is low unemployment rate, 3.5%. If, you know, 96, let's call it 97% of people who want a job have one. Uh, so pretty much everyone can get can get a job. You know, you can you can spend money. You can go uh buy buy that thing. You know, uh and you and, and so you don't curtail spending. Well, look,
1: the it's interesting. We talked before at the outset about uh, the Ford guidance, which uh, uh, I love the term of your show. Uh, what's the Fed focused on? The Fed is focused on service sector inflation. It's in the Conference Board's index of lagging economic indicators. The Fed's focused on the unemployment rate. You're right, 3.5%, it's in the index of lagging economic indicators. And so that's why we have a Fed focusing on contemporaneous or lagging indicators. Uh, They obviously have no faith in their models, and they have no faith in their forecasts. They're focused on things that lag the cycle. The unemployment rate is always the last thing to go up. The recession causes the rise in unemployment. The rise in unemployment does not cause the recession the recession causes the rise in unemployment. And it's not unusual to have the unemployment rate only begin to rise well after the recession has actually already started.
0: Cassie, so what causes a recession? Uh, a, a, you know, a, a seemingly simple question, but one is super hard to answer right now.
1: It's when um, the economic agents, you know, face some sort of a, of a, of a, of a negative, exogenous shock. So um, the shock has been interest rates. Interest rates, the power of compound interest uh, works in both directions for savers and borrowers, but as maybe the best economist of all time was a Nobel uh, laureate physicist, otherwise known as Albert Einstein, who famously says that the power of compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. We've had the biggest interest rate shock since 1981. If I'm not mistaken, 1981 was followed by 1982, which was not a mild recession, by the way. So we've had an interest rate shock uh, that so far, part of that impact has been blunted by the lingering impact of the fiscal stimulus, which is now in the rearview mirror. So when Jay Powell said at Jackson Hole a year ago, he was going to inflict pain on households and businesses. Uh, for anyone who wants to be in the market for a car, the financing costs are way too high, can't afford it. Anyone wants to go out and buy a home, uh, the housing market is, is in the complete doldrums, uh, especially in the resale market. So that's how the recession takes hold in those particular sectors. Look in the business sector, for example. In the business sector, what happens when your financing rates go up as much as they have? So your hurdle rate for new capital projects uh has been influenced dramatically by the higher. You have to discount, you have to you have to you have to look at your a priori uh expected rate of return on new investment benchmarked against the cost of capital. That that equation has changed. So it's totally clouded the outlook for capital investment. So this is a case of, um, for people that are in this no landing or soft landing cap, it's really a case of of hope triumphing over experience, Uh, or unless you think the business cycle has been repealed or interest rates don't matter. But you see... It usually takes two years from the time of the first rate hike to the recession. Uh, now it's true that not every Fed tightening cycle leads to a recession, but the three that did not lead to recession in the post World War II period, which was in the mid 60s, the mid 80s, the mid 90s, the Fed did not keep tightening into an inverted yield curve. This Fed who was shamed because it missed on the inflation and has spent so much time rebuilding its credibility. Um, You know, the bottom line has been uh, that we have to take no prisoners and embark on one of the most regressive tightening cycles and continue to raise rates into the yield curve inversion.
0: Hey there, I wanna tell you about YCharts. It's a state-of-the-art platform that helps you on every stage of your investing journey, from idea generation to portfolio construction to performance tracking. It's gonna simplify your investment research process so you can act on an idea right when that light bulb flicks on. I use YCharts every day, not just to make charts to show and forward guidance, which I'm sure you've seen, but for fundamental research into macro and companies as well. For example, in March, I needed a crash course about the issues regional banks were having. You can probably imagine why. So I used the YCharts stock screener to find the cheapest regional banks with a variety of metrics, and that led me to the companies that were at the eye of the storm, and that helped me a huge amount. These are some of the ways I use YCharts, but I've only scratched the surface. If you're an investing pro, they've got much more powerful tools for you. Scatter plots, time series analysis, report building, and client communication. I know charts well, and I like to think I know my audience well, so I know that there are a lot of people watching this right now who would benefit immensely from Charts. Whether you're an individual investor or a professional in the wealth management business, whatever stage you're at, Charts is going to help you get to the next level. So you really should check them out. Go to go.ycharts.com forward-guidance. And by the way, if you click that link, we can get you a free trial, so at no cost, you take it out for a test drive, see if charts is a good fit for you. And what's more, if you're a new customer and you sign up, you can get 15, percent off your initial subscription using that link which again is go.ycharts.com/forward-guidance. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the interview. Advocates for the no landing scenario would say maybe not that interest rates don't matter but that this cycle is much much less sensitive to interest rates for a variety of reasons you alluded to one that homeowners are locked in at that super low rate as are, you know, S&P 500 companies that issued tons of, you know, investment grade debt for a very very long long term. Would you say that this economic cycle is somewhat less sensitive to interest rates or that, you know, compared to the the 1980s when manufacturing was, which was mostly financed by bank loans was a, you know, a a huge percentage of the economy, whereas now manufacturing is something like 20% of the economy. And, you know, a lot of companies finance themselves in the bond market, not, not sort of floating rate debt. Would you say it's somewhat less sensitive to interest rates than the 1980s or the exact same? Marginally, marginally, it's, it's not,
1: you know, if you look at the, if you look at the interest sensitive share of the economy, uh, marginally lower than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Certainly not enough of a difference to say there's no recession this time. Um, you could have said, uh, I mean, look, it was uh, called the Great Recession. You could have made the same argument going into 08 and 09 that the share of manufacturing in the economy has never been this low before. Don't worry about it. And people were making that argument. Um, and this is not going to be a repeat of 08 or 09 but i think that um that uh, to say that uh the economy is interest insensitive because so many homeowners locked in that you see that that's not where the recession starts right the recession starts because higher interest rates make it tougher uh for people to buy big ticket items it makes it tougher to do almost everything that requires a loan uh, what it does is it basically induces people to save. You have now, now you can get you know five to five and a half percent in T bills or your money market account. Well, it's, uh, that's what the Fed wants. When the Fed's cutting rates, it wants people not to save; it wants people to spend. When it raises rates to these levels, they want people to save. So, it's not a dynamic we had a couple of years ago. Look, everything got um, complicated by COVID. Uh, the response to COVID, all the stimulus related to COVID, uh, and um, people's behavior. But I was saying before that, you know, the, the the fiscal stimulus of the past couple of years, and we're not talking about bricks and mortar or what they're talking about, manufacturing capacity and all this stuff. That does not influence the contours of the business cycle, okay? But when you give somebody free money, like the government was doing, and to such an extent, uh, and we couldn't spend it all at once. So this was a gift that kept on giving right up until, well, like once again, I'll tip my hat to the San Fran Fed, that money is about to run out. So, you know, we'll see, we'll put the thesis uh, to the test. I think that the people in the no landing soft landing camp had the fact that everybody spent all the stimulus, which is incredible. And then it kept on going right up until current day, which is also rather incredible. But then again, $2.2 trillion. I mean, you can't spend that all at once. And it had a two year, a two-year time span rather incredible but remember that the recession starts two years after the first rate hike almost to a t and the first rate hike was march 2022 which means that you got fourth quarter this year first quarter next year with a um a bullet on its forehead and we have to take into account the fact that you know um why are we seeing, like, like if the labor market is as strong as they say, you see, we, we put so much faith on the government numbers. We know now after Macy's, Kohl's, Walmart, you know, Target, I mean, all of them, Lowe's. I, I, I mean, we know that the 0.7% July retail sales that ripped the face off the bond market and everybody just joyous over like, this is like Brazilian economy, we're you going to put stock on what the you know what what the retailers had to say, uh, or what the government data showed for July. Seems to be a different picture, but I'm there talking about the fact that how is it, how is it that before you see you talked about the unemployment rate, and you're correct, it's three and a half percent. So three why why then are bank wide Consumer card delinquency rates have already taken out their pandemic recession highs in early 2020 when the economy was locked down. And we are at a 12 year, we're at a 11 year high. We're at the highest level since 2012 on consumer. And this was the linchpin for growth. Linchpin for growth is not the people, the people that borrowed, locked in their mortgage, they're basically irrelevant. They're neither a negative nor a positive. Okay. But what about these people that are defaulting on their credit cards? And it's not just that, but also look at the, look at auto loans.
0: So those delinquencies on autos and cards are, as you say, above the 2019 uh, level. And yeah, for, for, but delinquencies, they were secretly low after Uh, you know, over over the over the past 10 years, like I think delinquencies now are lower than they were in 2003. So there's a lot of secular stuff going on. And isn't it fair to say that borrow revolving consumer credit as a percentage of national income, or percentage of personal income is actually quite low? Uh, No, I don't think so at all. Okay, I'd like to see a chart on that Uh, uh, total household debt
1: to income only looks low relative to the bubble peak. In the mid 2000s, o- outside of that, it's above every other cyclical peak that we've had going back in the post World War II era. Um, uh, we 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 had a blowout consumer credit uh, growth this cycle, especially in the past year, uh, and um, auto loans, especially in subprime autos. So there's been a outside of mortgages, um, a huge credit bubble. Uh, in uh, in non-mortgage household lending in the past several years, the question I was going to say you can talk about 2003, but in 2003 the unemployment rate was call it uh, you know uh, we we were just coming out of the um, of the recession uh, and we were what six seven percent unemployment. We got the highest credit card delinquency rates since 2012 when the unemployment rate was eight percent. So what's it telling you? What's it telling you? Like, what happens when the unemployment rate goes to four and four and a half? The Fed wants it at four and a half. Maybe that's why they, they hire for longer. They're frustrated that they're not getting more slack in the labor market. You've already had <laughs> these delinquency rates go up, and we're not talking about low numbers. These are like you're talking over a trillion dollars of debt, and this is what happens. This is what bankers see. So that's why you know once again, what came out of the last round of bank earnings? They are radically boosting their loan loss provisioning from very low levels. What does that mean? It means that we're going into some form of credit contraction. That's how you get a recession. That's why out of the 14 Fed rate hiking cycles since 1950, uh, 11 of those were followed by an NBER defined recession. And I said before, you had three soft landings, mid sixties, mid eighties, mid nineties, but the fed stopped. The fed stopped. They were not focused on lagging indicators and they respected the, the shape of the yield curve. So we got, we did not get recessions in those periods. Now, remember, I talked about the mid eighties. We skipped the recession, but when the fed inverted the yield curve in 1989, we had a recession in 1990, 91. Uh, we uh, skipped a recession in the mid '60s, but the Fed inverted the yield curve in late '60s. and We had a recession starting in December 1969. Uh, you know, we had a res- you know we we uh, the mid '90s. Remember, in '94, '95, Greenspan's call maestro. He raised rates from three percent to six percent. Didn't invert the yield curve. Guess why? Because he respected market signals. And Greenspan, despite his faults, did not focus on. Lagging indicators. Uh, now he made his own mistakes, but be that as it may, when they did invert the yield curve in 2000, but we had a recession starting in 2001. So I just find it very interesting that, you know, you're talking to me about, well, the economy is less interest sensitive here and people locked in their mortgages there. And it's all this stuff that, you know, let's just pretend the business cycle doesn't exist. I hear this. I mean, I've been doing this 40 years. I hear, I hear it every time. Uh, the United States is, at its root, a credit-driven economy. What happens in rate cycles in both directions, it influences the creation of credit. And you're seeing the early signs of it contracting. And it's going to continue because only now what's changed, what's changed the most, admittedly, is not the unemployment rate. By the time you're watching unemployment go up, it's too late. But the delinquency rates going up, as much as they are in the context of 3.5% employment is telling you about all the reckless lending and boring behavior that took place this time. So we just replaced credit cards with what happened with subprime mortgages 15 years ago. And it's not gonna be nearly as big a deal. And these things aren't wrapped in mezzanine CDOs and leveraged over and not in fictional AAA security sold all over the world. However, this is how a recession starts. It starts with a significant erosion in credit quality in one particular asset class. And right now you're seeing it in credit cards, and it is not insignificant, even though it's not residential mortgages.
0: Yeah. And it, it kind of snuck out of, out of nowhere because credit card delinquencies were so low in 2020 and 2021 that, you know, from moving from 50 basis points to 80 basis points didn't seem like nothing. But yeah, now we're at, in aggregate, uh, 2019 level highs. And I think there, there was a huge um, decline in borrowing in twenty twenty because gov- gov- government uh, people relied on, on fiscal stimulus or other stuff. Uh, there was not a lot of demand for bank credit, so bank credit has been exploding higher, and so bank credit la- uh, peaked last year in twenty twenty two. And alarmingly, I would agree with you definitely on this that I think like loans and leases uh, has been stagnant for the past seven months, which is which is not a uh, particularly good side it's, i I say it was an it is an ominous sign uh, for the economy
1: yeah look on, on top of that we have uh, what's happening in commercial real estate and, and then look at where CNI loans are going uh, on bank balance sheets they're contracting so that's what I'm talking about you know so people look see people take a very myopic and what economists would call a partial equilibrium or static approach towards interest rates. And they say, well, don't worry, you know, people locked in their mortgages. Oh, and you said earlier, oh, don't worry, companies locked in. That's not what gets the recession started. Um, what gets the recession started really is the impact it has on new spending. What is GDP? It's aggregate demand. It's about new spending, not old spending, new spending. So there's no way you're going to convince me that we're going to have the same spending profile at a five and a half percent funds rate that we did when it was close to zero. How, how does that make any sense? Uh so uh, of course the economy resets. The economy is a juggernaut, it's got $25 trillion juggernaut, it doesn't implode normally. Most recessions don't have it implode, but it's a gigantic battleship, okay? But Uh, it responds and resets to these higher rates. So we've had a massive interest rate shock. We have not seen the full impact yet. Part of this impact has been blunted by two things. Student debt relief, done. Stimulus checks of over $2 trillion, done. And uh, this will be very interesting to see how all this plays out in the final few months of this year and in the next year, as you're taking these props away. On top of that, we have China seemingly heading into some sort of recession, or certainly it's already entered into a structural slowdown. Now that's bumping up against a cyclical slowdown. And it is exporting its deflation to the rest of the world in one statistic. In July, export prices in China, we're down 5.5% year over year, and their export prices are the import prices for everybody else in the world. They're deflating. They're exporting their deflation. And then we're watching the central bankers just talk about higher for longer and about inflation as they continue to fight yesterday's war. Uh, and um, Germany looks like it's on the precipice of another recession with all obvious complications for all of Europe. I think that if we escape this little recession, it'll be, it'll be a miracle. I I will have to write a report that hope did triumph over experience that the U S economy, uh, that somehow we've repealed the business cycle. You know, I will write a whole report saying that we've repealed mother nature and that, and, and all the people that were saying, you see, it's interesting, right? Because our industry is populated with optimists, right? Optimists, you know, it's like, you know, the, um, the optimist and the pessimist. You know, they go out for a cup of coffee, and the uh, the optimist says things can't possibly get any better, and the pessimist says, "You know what? I think you're right." <laughs> so, you know, but, we're, but our industry is littered littered with with, with optimists. So like the optimist.
0: Investor, stock investors, economists. It, it's. But I'm just saying, everybody. Look yeah. When the feds
1: You go back. You know, in the early nineties. In the early nineties, the, the Fed slicing rates, slicing rates, slicing rates. Don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. You know, back in um, in the early 2000s, the Fed slicing rates. In 2002, the recession was already over. They're still cutting rates to one percent by June of 03. Don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. Then you had the same thing in early 09. You know, as it looked like everything's the banks are going to go bust. You know, Fed's cutting rates. Of course, it did. We don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. Then, of course, this time, back in March of 2020, the stock market's plunging. Fed opens up its kimono to every asset you can think of. I'm surprised that they weren't buying uh, lithium and uranium and along with everything else and slicing rates, slicing rates, slicing rates. Don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed. So Jack, you tell me, does anybody tell you don't fight the Fed on the way, when rates are on the way up? Nobody says, it's like this. Yeah, don't, don't fight the Fed. It's very interesting, right? Don't fight the Fed only works in one direction. But you see, Interest rates work, work with lags in both directions, right? Like it wasn't as the Fed was cutting rates. And look, I was loaded for bear back in 08, but I was telling people back in early 09 uh, that, uh, you know, that the Fed's rate moves work in both directions. Next thing you know, the recession ends in uh, the June of 2009. The market bottomed March of 09. And of course, we're off to the races. And, uh, you know, thanks to the Fed, it works in both directions. To me, I'm going to say, it's disingenuous to say that it's different this time, uh, disingenuous to say that interest rates don't matter and that the Fed policy only works in one direction. There's lags. And let me tell you something that in the next, all these people saying higher for longer, higher for longer, higher for longer, they will be the first begging for the Fed to cut rates next year, but under totally different economic circumstances. And there is no more fiscal stimulus, by the way. That, that's over. That, that's over. The but fiscal, we're still running huge fiscal, deficits, right? Deficits will remain as high, super high, as far as the eye can see. But that is not stimulus. Stimulus is what does fiscal policy do incrementally to GDP growth. So if you take the fiscal deficit from one trillion to two trillion, okay, and it was done on the spending side, you've just given an immediate sugar high to the economy, okay. Let's say that you then keep the deficit of $2 trillion for the next 10 years. Incrementally adds nothing, adds nothing. For fiscal policy to be stimulative incrementally, the deficit has to go up each and every year, each and every year. But it's done. You know, we're not even talking about what happens, you know, now that the hardcore, you know, the, um, uh, the, uh, the hardcore uh, caucus and the, uh, what do they call the Freedom Caucus? It used yeah. to be the Tea Party. Well, we could be facing government shutdown. The fun and games are over. All the fun and games that, that Biden did, you see, he was smart. He knew in my first two years, I will never ever be able to, I will never be able to do everything I want to do past my first two years. So let's do this uh, uh, $2 trillion of giveaways. Let's do the... Um, the Chips Act, the ridiculously oxymoronic Inflation Reduction Act.
0: If you're trying to get stuff passed, it was a genius naming. If you're trying to name things accurately, maybe not so much. Yeah, and then he. <laughs> what, what I'm
1: saying it's is it different than what, what like Clinton knew when he got elected in '92? He had two years, uh, and he basically he failed at what he wanted to do uh, on healthcare. care. Uh, Obama realized I got to get this done. In my first two years because because when you're president and you got the legislative branch all on side you got two years because uh that's how long this sort of situation between unified executive branch and you got the house and you got the senate same thing with with trump trump knew he had two years to get his trillion dollar tax cut through when he did what happens after that? What happened? You, you know, everybody talked about Barack Obama, this Barack Obama, that the big interventionist and, uh, we're going to, you know, uh, fiscal tightening though, you know, and then, and the next thing, you know, is, is last six years, there was, there was nothing going on. We didn't have a fiscal stimulus really until Trump took over. And with, uh, unified Republicans having control of the agenda for two years, they, they passed a trillion dollar tax cut, which had an initial sugar high. It had initial sugar high, but it wasn't sustainable, and that's what I'm talking about. So all this stuff is in the rearview mirror. All the incremental impact of fiscal policy on growth is over. You know, unless you think that the Democrats are going to take the White House again and they'll sweep the House and the Senate, then we can talk about. Well, maybe we'll go back and talk about uh, um, you know a whole bunch of stuff like uh, like modern monetary theory again, which everybody was talking about a couple of years ago. But it's very difficult to get fiscal stimulus through when you have divided government. And that's what we have right now. We're going to be facing the prospect of a government shutdown at the end of September. Who's talking about that? You think the Fed's going to be raising rates in that environment? I don't think so. So And the September we, government sh- I thought we just got out of that. I thought No, well, we had got out of the debt ceiling. Yeah. And then but it only pushed well, it, it, this is this is about passing all the appropriation bills, right? Okay. And I think there's still twelve of them to go. This is about about next year's budget. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the, the overriding point is that the fiscal deficits, yes, they're going to remain very high. Uh, they become more structural. Uh, the higher interest rates have compounded that, uh, but the incremental impact on growth on GDP is in the rearview mirror. And what's staring us in the face are the lags from what the Fed's already done. I don't even know why people can't understand that the Fed was done in the summer of two thousand and six. Uh, recession starts in uh, you know the uh, the end of 07. You know the the Fed is the Fed is done raising rates in the in the winter of two thousand. Recession starts in the winter two thousand and one. Uh, the business cycle is not dead. Admittedly, the people that thought the recession would start already hasn't started yet. Um, but we had some very significant antidotes coming from fiscal policy.
0: So, David, you make a very compelling case against the no-landing argument. Uh, just in a, in a minute, I want to ask you about the, the soft landing as well as the chance it could be a mild recession, not a deep one. But just, uh, be, you, I could tell you, know, you've done a lot of historical work about a recession starts, uh, you know, a little under two years after the last in, uh, interest rate. first hike. The first hike, the, uh, the thank you. Uh, is it typical that you have a kind of um, intermezzo contrarian boom as the Fed is raising rates because people say, oh, the Fed's raising rates, things are got to stop and the economic activity is going to slow to a halt. But I mean, the economy has been, I would use this word, I'm curious if you would agree, resilient to interest rates so far. I'm not making a projection about that. It will continue to be resilient. But do you often find that? I mean, because I think the stock market did rally in 2005 and, and six. When does the bear market start?
1: and um you only know that with hindsight so in 05 and 06 the bear market hadn't started the stock market peaked on october 9th of 07 uh you can always go back and take a look when did when was the fundamental peak the fundamental peak this time around was i think uh january 3rd of uh 2022 so you can't compare this to 06 or 05 because the bear market has already started i mean we had a you do not have an 05 and 06 a 35% drawdown in the cyclical components of the stock market, which is what we had last year going into the October lows. We had a 35% drawdown. And, uh, it was, it's not unusual to have a, a reflexive rally. You know, as I quote Bob Farrell, there are three stages to every bear market. There's the first leg down, the reflexive rebound, and then the long and drawn out decline to the lows, uh, which maybe that process has already started. Uh, I put out on my report uh, a couple of weeks ago, I showed every single market since nineteen fifty, showing that what happened this year in terms of the reflexive counter trend rally, we always get that. We even got that we got we got that during the Great Recession. We got that during the tech wreck recession. It's not unusual. Uh and uh it's just is it always is
0: this vigorous though, where I guess what's well, I'm just doing the it's uh we you know from the lows in October s the S P rallied t- a little over you know, 28% and was within 3% or 5% of the all time highs and the NASDAQ was way more. Is that all it always is that vigorous? No, it's not always.
1: It's not always, but not unprecedented. Yeah. And then you're going to get sucked into the market and uh, you're going to get your head sliced off. (laughs) So, I mean, do the math, do the math. Uh, Fundamental lows uh, in the stock market do not occur when the equity risk premium is less than 100 basis points. Normally, mm-hmm. you're closer to 400 basis points and 100 basis points. Uh, so there's massive uh, mispricing of, uh, of risk. And where is the benchmark risk-free rate? Um, now, when it was close to zero back in early 2020, and you're doing your, you know, your discounted cash flow analysis, you could say, hey, look, the, this is like a jack-in-the-bean stock. But the risk-free rate is at uh, is I mean is over five percent, and so um, uh, you know if you made five percent last year in treasury bills, I mean you couldn't last year, but if you did in a year where the market was down twenty percent, you you were a hero. If you made five percent for your clients last year, you were a hero, but you couldn't do that last year in the treasury bill market, but you can do it this year. But you see, because of the fact that you have like seven or eight stocks you know, account for, you know, three quarters of the return this year. And of course, I'm just an index buyer. So I don't really care. I got concentrated risk. Oh, who cares? Look what the market's doing. Uh, 5%, you're up 5% this year, 2023. What a loser you are. 5% in 2022, you're a hero, 2023, because people just look and see what the stock market's doing. But what the stock market's doing today is not necessarily going to be what the stock market's doing by the end of the year or next year. So, um, you know, Sometimes you know you look at the stock market and there's a hodgepodge of things that influence it. There's always the fundamentals, earnings revisions, um, balance sheet quality, the economy. And, but then there's fund flows, market positioning. There's a technical picture, uh, and there's liquidity uh, and uh, valuations and all these things. At any moment in time, one of them can dominate more than the other. You know, sentiment to something I didn't mention. Sentiment. This was a lot of sentiment. Uh, and um, a lot of market positioning, did the fundamentals really change? uh Not for me. You know, the New York Fed uh, has a three-yield curve model uh that's showing that right now the odds of a recession in the next year are 96%. 96%. The St. Louis Fed has their own. It's at 75%. Are you telling me there's anything out there that is priced for 75% or 96% recession odds? The New York Fed is the one I focus on. Uh, it crossed above seventy percent last November. Just by the way, when the Powell yield curve <laughs> inverted, and I use seventy percent as a cutoff because there's there's no returning once you pierce seventy percent on the New York Fed modified uh, recession model. Uh, once you get above seventy percent, it is a Fed accompli, as I say on the Quebec side of the border, les jeux sont faits, and um, And so we crossed over 70% in November. And and once again, you know, the lags are about, uh, you know, 10 to 12 months to the recession, which means that actually the people that were calling for recession uh, just have to be a little more patient. Um, And I think that what camouflaged the situation was all the fiscal stimulus that we had going this year. But you see, that has an expiry date on it. And it's starting actually. This month and next month. So it'll be interesting to see. And look, I am more than willing to eat crow, wipe the egg off my face. If we go into next year and the recession signals are not flashing, uh, I mean, I will be really surprised, but I won't hide behind a bad call. I'm not changing my call. Uh, and I know everybody else is throwing in the towel. They did the same thing back in 2007. Everything in 2007, where's the recession? Where's the recession? Where's the recession? Where's the recession? And the recession came in December of 07, and uh, the NBER didn't even make the declaration for
0: another 12 months. And, yeah, I mean, I, I, and until in August of 2008, there were still people who were and, saying that we weren't in a recession, right? I mean, after Lehman, it became kind of undeniable. The but.
1: consensus. Yeah, well, the thing is that, look, that's what I mean, is that the recession is what causes all the funky things to happen. I mean, we just had three banks fail, three regional banks. What well, didn't happen in the context of recession, but had in the context of a lot of funky things that were going on during the period of excessive monetary accommodation.
0: Yes. And it was all due to duration, not not credit,
1: but yeah. yeah. pendulum has swung the other way. So the recession is about declining confidence on Main Street and a pullback in spending. And the pullback in spending then has impacts on incomes uh production and then it has and then of course there has to be something that happens that causes the uh the floor to be put under the economy and then that means the Fed's got to come in and cut interest rates i continue to come back to what is this higher for longer like what does it even mean i guess the feds trying to show that they're still flexing their muscles um and that um you know They still believe somehow their credibility is not fully intact, or they're not convinced the economy is cooling fast enough, or the labor market is building enough, enough excess capacity, or inflation is not falling fast enough, right? All all these lagging indicators that they're focused on. Interest rates are cyclical. If you look at the, you look at the economic cycle, and you look at the rate cycle, and you look at the credit cycle, you look at the market cycle, there are all these, uh, centrifugal forces, they are these sine waves that intersect with each other. Interest cyclical. When I hear the, the higher, the higher for longer, it's just, it's just, I'll tell you, it's just gobbledygook, right? Just gobbledygook. And then why, why should I listen to a word the Fed says? Why should you, Jack, with all due respect? Yeah, please. First question to me is, is about Powell at Jackson Hole. Yeah. Oh, 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 the, the same Jay Powell and the same Fed. That told us in the summer of 2021, when they rolled out their dot plots for the end of 2023, that we finished this year with a funds rate at five-eighths of a percent. Oh, oh, that fed. That fed. Now we're going to finish it at five and a half or thereabouts. Really? So all I hear, higher for longer. All the all the stuff from Powell and the Fed, you know, on Friday, you know, I'll tell you the truth, it was just pure. To me, it was just pure noise. It was just pure noise. All they're telling me is they they have they have no clue. One minute the Fed staff has a recession forecast, the next minute they don't. You know, he tells us, for example, he did. Did he talk about his super core? His he super didn't. core? X? Ex- no, it didn't. Why? because he doesn't want people to think that he believes inflation is actually going to come down and stay down. Four yeah. months in a row, four yeah. months in a row, his favorite indicator that he doesn't talk about, you know, the, the, the core X rental measures service sector CPI has been 0.2 or lower four months in a row. and over So that less
0: than 2% per- annualized, yeah.
1: one6 annualized over that period. But, you know, once again, <laughs> we don't want the public to think that we actually believe that inflation is going to come down and stay down. They don't want the market. They don't want the market to believe that. Okay, they they didn't want the market when they un- un- unveiled all those five eighths of a percent. Think how ridiculous that is. They wanted everybody to believe in the summer of twenty twenty one. It was not a million years ago, two years ago. They wanted everybody, everybody to believe we will never raise rates again. We're we're not raising rates. Oops. Biggest interest rate cycle since 1981. Yep. So seriously, maybe at inflection points. That was an inflection point when rates were at zero 2021, time to bet against the Fed. And now we're at a new inflection point at the peak after the most aggressive tightening stance since Paul Volcker in 81. Let me ask you a question. Did Volcker, you know, <coughs> hire for longer? The biggest the biggest interest rate slayer of all time was Volcker. Mm-hmm. Who was the biggest inflation dragon slayer? Nobody cut rates more than he did. You want to go back and count all the basis points of rate cuts that he implemented? And not just in 1980, but also night also in 1985-86. Biggest interest rate slayer of all time. Higher for longer. So to yeah. me, it's just higher for longer. It's just it's a nice, it's a nice slogan. It's a nice slogan. Doesn't mean anything to me. Meanwhile despite everything that they threw, everything they threw, Loretta Mester and Susan Collins. And, oh, then they got, then they get Richard Fisher, uh, you know, and they get uh, Bullard who Bullard, uh, there's not a camera that Bullard's not going to go in front of. They just got, you know, they just got way more to go. They got more to go. And then when they go, they're never going to cut rates again. You see what I'm saying? They said in 2020 and 2021, they were never going to raise rates again. well, What happened? It was a classic case of like Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football. Now they're saying, oh, they're never going to cut rates again. You don't see the perfect symmetry here. So I'll be placing bets completely the other way. The market's price, the swaps market's price for the Fed to cut rates 100 basis points next year.
0: It's not enough. That's, my, that's my next, yeah, next question. How much is enough and what gives you confidence that it's not a, you know, a mild recession or even a slowdown that, you know, it comes just shy of a, of a recession, recession with capital R recession uh, and that it will be deep? Why is that? You know, I don't even understand why that's an important question. It's
1: not. So it might not be a deep recession. Uh, the mildest recession in history was the tech rec recession in 2001. So if I told you ahead of that, we're, it's, don't worry, don't worry, it's going to be a mild recession. You got your head sliced off as an equity investor, not just in the NASDAQ. It was a horrible bear market.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: The Fed had to take the funds rate down from, uh, from what? From six and a half down to
0: 1%. Which so- a lot of people say was way too low. So, so, okay, you know, saying, if, if, not,
1: uh, yeah, I, look, I'm just saying like what I'm trying to just get back to your question is like, in answer to your question, I don't mean to be rude. No, no, no. But I, I don't care if it's going to be, I'm more cared about, let's see how deep it's going to be once it starts. You know, we're putting the, like the, the, the car before the horse here. Let's just say the market's not even priced for recession. Why don't we just get to the recession and then see how things play out? Um, I think the risk is that because this Fed is so obtuse and so narrowly focused on its inflation mandate that they are going to be slow and they've already been too slow. They've already over tightened and they're going to be too slow to cut. So I'm not concerned so much about the magnitude. the magnitude will depend on what sort of financial failures we get. I mean, how deep will the credit crunch be? But I don't think anybody's going to handle on the magnitude of the recession, and neither do I. Right now, we're not even people just deb- debating whether there's going to be a recession at all. Um, I'm more concerned about the duration of the recession. Mm. I'm, I, I'm more concerned that it's going to last. Why is that? Well, that was you see when I talked about you know 2001. Um, that was the problem. That was the problem is that we had a recession uh, in 2001, and it was followed by no recovery in 2002. And actually, the lows didn't happen until September, October of 2002. That was already about a year after the recession technically ended. And with the benefit of hindsight, what
0: was the reason why that recession was so long?
1: Well, I, I think once again, the Fed over tightened as it was fighting the tech bubble, and then it was too slow to cut rates. The Fed didn't start to cut rates until January of 2001. And um and so they were late. Uh Greenspan had thought, and look, I think Greenspan was a great central banker despite all the flaws, but he had thought it was just going to be an inventory correction. That's what he had thought. And he didn't realize till we got into twenty until two thousand and one that actually it was not an inventory correction. It was a deflationary detonation of the technology capital stock. Now I don't wanna sit here and you know, from a glass house and start throwing stones, but you know and then of course we had 911 uh, and 911 cut both ways because it was a big shock but it's interesting that 911 actually the recession ended two months later the technical aspect of the recession because of all the stimulus uh, and then uh, we rolled right over and then of course we had the 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 the, 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 the corporate uh, malfeasance uh, that was going on around uh WorldCom and Enron and that of course created a crisis of confidence and that sort of stuff is idiosyncratic risk that you can never really predict um, but that's ultimately what triggered us to go down to the lows uh, that fall now the bottom line is that it was still a mild recession and whether 9 911 it was still a brutal period for risk assets so I'm not even so sure you see the thing is if we get if we got actually a big recession, And the Fed reacted in kind, we'd get a nice V-shaped recovery. Uh, the problem with mild recessions is you don't typically get the V-shaped recovery. Uh, the problem I have is that, um, it's not so much with the, um, it's not so much with the magnitude of the decline. I'm not too concerned about the magnitude. I'm more concerned about how long the malaise is going to last. Uh, even if we get a mild recession, how long are we going to have a series of low case W's in terms of what the recovery looks like. Like where you know, like people talk about, you know, the 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 CHIPS Act, but I mean that's 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 a level shift. That's not something that incrementally people are totally confused when it comes to talking about fiscal policy and the impact it has on uh on year over year GDP growth. Um does anybody really have there that the sickly adjusted deficit-GDP ratio is going to continue to go up in the next several years. And, and then we've already reached a point where the debt is so high that the rating agencies are not going to let it happen. And it was de- so see, there's there's a constraint. So all the people talking about fiscal this, fiscal that, it's not like in the 1980s when Reagan went through the historic tax cuts and the debt, to GDP was like 30%, right? We're in a totally different, <laughs> nobody's talking about downgrading you know, the reserve currency of the world back then. Think about how nutty it is. So there's no more. So there's, I don't see where's the fiscal response going to come in the next recession. We don't have the capacity. Uh And then we have a Fed that's so dogmatic that, you know, you know, I think they'll be forced to cut rates aggressively and it'll be too late. You're talking about an economy. You see, your question before is going to reverse course because you said, well, the economy is not that interest sensitive. Mm-hmm. Let's say you're right on that. So what happens when they start to cut rates? Good point. You see what you see. What's going to happen? Is the same people saying the same clowns uh, that uh, and and stock promoters, and then most of them work at Wall Street banks. Yeah. Um, they say the economy. It, it, don't worry, it's not interest sensitive anymore. But what happens in the recession when they cut rates? They'll be the first ones to say, "Don't fight the Fed." But you see, part of it is that. Um, we're choking on all these durable goods assets that we all bought. You know, then of course that went through and then we went on to the going to restaurants and traveling abroad and so on and so forth. And all the experience spending, the anger spending, I'm going to go fly business class to Vegas with my friends, you know, for the week. Well, that's what's going on. But you see the durable goods, what are you going to do for an encore? Are you, are you really going to renovate your house for the second time in four years? You know, that's a bit of the problem is that we are choking on excessive ownership of durable good assets, so
0: or, or if you, you refi your mortgage at 3.8 percent in 2020 and now interest rates are at se- uh, mortgages rates are at seven percent, if the Fed cuts 200 basis points and mortgages go to five percent, are you going to refi from 3.8 to five? No, you're, So you're absolutely right. that the interest rate sensitivity argument goes both ways for sure.
1: Really, what was important about the Fitch, you see people look at the Fitch downgrade and they say, oh boy. I got to cut duration of my bond portfolio. Well, look, <laughs> the U.S. is not going to be. The U.S. government's not defaulting on its debt, okay? Uh, and no reserve, no reserve currency ever has to. Uh, the U.S. is not going to default on its debt, and so, you know, Canada's been rated A plus for God knows how long, and their interest rate structure is lower than it is in the in the U.S. Yeah, Japan, I think
0: is. Only single A, maybe, and their interest rates are at zero. So. Yeah,
1: and, and and so and, and so, but but it, it does act as a constraint. And what ha- what happened actually when we had the um, uh, what was it? It was the S and P downgrade, right? Uh, Two thousand eleven. Yeah, so twenty eleven. The the, yeah. the deficit GDP ratio was eight percent, and then and then President Obama was battling a hawkish. GOP for years, uh, you know. By the time Trump got elected, that deficit GDP ratio got down to three percent. Went from eight to three, and without the Fed doing anything, because they had rates pinned at zero, uh, and you could say, well, they're doing QE. But then again, QE was always aimed at generating animal spirits in the stock market. But the ten-year Treasury note yield in that period went down two hundred basis points. You had tremendous fiscal drag. That's what I mean. What was the importance of that downgrade in 2011? Was it acted as a constraint? And uh, and so you're telling me that we're going to be pushing fiscal stimulus after this last downgrade? No, no. That that that's that source of growth in the economy is over. I mean, just to answer your question though, remember just to get to neutral. Now the Fed has not changed its estimate of neutral. They have no confidence in that number, but they haven't changed it, and it's two and a half percent. So just to get to neutral, they'd have to cut the funds rate 300 basis points just to get rid of the excessive restraint. And the only thing I think that Powell said on Friday that I agreed with is that we are in restrictive mode. Well, just to get to neutral, and maybe they'll have to see more evidence of declining inflation. They'll have to see the labor market loosen up. Uh, but just to get to neutral, they'd have to cut rates 300 basis points,
0: let alone move to a net stimulative backdrop. So the, the 10-year treasury is at 4.2% now. In this recession scenario of next year, uh, where do you think it, it goes? And you can tell us at, you know, at, at what time horizon. I, I think
1: we'll get down to, uh, I think the 10-year note will get down to 3%. And we'll get down on the two-year note down to something closer to you know two to two and a half. We have to remember that a couple of things. I am a disciple of Bob Farrell, okay? Bob Farrell's rule number one is markets tend to revert to the mean over time. The yield curve is only invert, inverted historically 15% of the time. We have to wake up and understand that what's happening with the yield curve is totally abnormal. Um, anybody who's taken any CFA course or any securities course, I mean, what about the time value of money? The yield curve is positively sloped 85% of the time, and that's normal. And it typically inverts when the Fed has over-tightened policy, which is where we are right now. But this is not a steady state. So if you believe in mean reversion, the question becomes, how will the yield curve mean revert? How will it ultimately revert to its more normal positive slope? Will it happen because the back end of the curve, yields shoot up? And if that's your view, why hasn't it happened already? What is already going to happen? And that's been very rare historically, right? Yeah, well, at this stage of the cycle, and after the Fed raises rates 500 basis points, the back end, it, it, the, the inflation genie has been put back in the bottle. I mean, look at the Baltic Dry Index, for crying out loud. It's down 80% from the peak. Um, and so the curve is going to, this time next year, be positively sloped. You know, uh, I think traditionally say, you know, twos tens is usually a hundred to one hundred fifty basis points. So I think that uh, you know you're probably down to two two and a half percent on the two year note. You're three to three and a half on the ten year note. I think those are levels. I think in the next year, in the context of recession and declining inflation, I said before the San Fran Fed puts out the best research if they are anywhere in the ballpark on rents. Inflation is going to be, if not 1%, 0.5%. The Fed's not going to be cutting rates. And like I said, just to get to neutral, they'd have to go 300 basis points. And I think that they'll ultimately go below 2.5% because I think the economy is going to need the help. I know that it's not evident right now. Everybody is talking about consumer resilience and economic resilience. I don't, I, I, I've never made it a point of forecasting what today's headlines are saying. I spend my life forecasting, what are the headlines going to say, 6 and 12 months from now? And it will be saying uh, that we have entered into a default cycle. Uh, we're going to have a loosening up in the labour market on higher unemployment, which is what the Fed wants. The Fed gets what it wants. Interest rates will start to, we won't be talking about higher for longer anymore. Uh, and I think we'll be talking about the fact that the recession came. It came late, but it came. Uh, I can't tell you the same people that today threw in the, the towel on the recession call did the same thing in 2007. And believe me, when they, they my nickname at Merrill Lynch was the skunk of the picnic, I had no friends. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but I, but I, I stuck to my guns because I'll just tell you why I, I do not believe in new eras. I'm not a, I don't believe in new eras. I don't believe the business cycle has been repealed. And I believe that interest rates will always matter. Uh, for asset prices, especially long-duration asset prices, and for the economy, especially a credit-driven economy like the United States. It's preposterous to say. Now, we can always talk about that there are antidotes, and fiscal policy, the lagged impacts of everything I talked about, helped out this year, keep the economy above board, not to be repeated. And so um, uh, I will keep it open mind. Uh, I've been in this business long enough to know that you don't put all your eggs in one basket and there is no such thing as a sure thing. I'm willing to give it about six months. Uh, if my call doesn't prove present by then, then, um,
0: I will be the one screaming uncle. Just because something hasn't happened yet, doesn't mean it's go- going to happen. You're, you're absolutely right. And before I ask my, my final question, um, uh, yeah. So people can find you on Twitter at econ guy, Rosie and, uh, uh, your research, uh, um, Rosenberg Research and, and Associates. My final question for you is: Do you think that the global manufacturing cycle has bottomed or is about to bottom? Because if we enter a recession, if the U.S. enters a recession, but the global manufacturing cycle is going to, you know, come out of a trough, that would mitigate a lot of the damage to the global economy. But if not, then that could be a lot more serious.
1: No, I'm waiting for it. Not seeing it in the data. We just uh, uh, put out a report on. Uh, we have a whole global PMI. Uh, heat map, and it's not showing that we've hit bottom yet on the manufacturing side. Uh, and really, when you think about it, how can it? When you look at how weak things have become in Europe and also in China, and then there's all sorts of impacts through the trade channels. Uh, looking at the orders to inventories data, for example, that ratio not giving me uh, a signal that we've hit bottom yet on the manufacturing side. Hmm. I know, I know that I know that you know we got to differentiate between. The construction of manufacturing facilities, uh, to facilitate bringing, say, chip production home, things along that, those lines. That again has to, uh, be, um, amortized over long periods of time. Then the question is going to be, once you build the plant, who are you going to sell the stuff to? And that's, uh, so the PMI data, the manufacturing production data, they're not measuring the fact where we might be adding manufacturing plant capacity, but it's measuring demand in the industrial sector uh, and um, it's still weak and I'm not getting, I'm not getting a pulse right now telling me that it's, that it's hit bottom.
0: Interesting. And then in the U S do you have a view on where the unemployment rate will peak? I know in 2009, or 2010, you have peaked at a very high level, but it is possible that, okay, yes, we enter U.S. enters a recession, but still on a secular level, there's a tight labor market. So the, you know, unemployment rate peaks at, a you know, 5%, 6%. What, what do you think about that? Well, you know, it's, it's because again, because c- of all the COVID distortions,
1: uh, it's really hard to make book as to where it's going to peak out at. And, uh, there's no doubt that companies have been hoarding labor. Uh, and this all came out of the U.S. response, the government's response, uh, to COVID. Uh, I, I mean, we, the government paid people for years to not work, extended, um, and expanded unemployment insurance well after the economy reopened. And so people chose not to work, but a lot of people were in the lower skilled, uh, lower pay sectors of the economy, you're getting paid more not to work than go back to your old job. That's why a lot of these um, say low value add service sectors had such a horrible experience trying to get people back to work in the last couple of years of course nothing works better than just raising wages and bringing people online and then of course we had the whole period where the quit rate became the fed's favorite indicator because everybody was jumping around but jumping around really mostly in the leisure hospitality industry and and that's really what we're what we're talking about so it's interesting that we've seen uh, erosion and a lot of labor market indicators, but you're not seeing that being picked up in the jobless claim numbers. Like historically, if we're talking about a real recession, jobless claims would be close to 300,000, not 230,000. Um, but you see, all the claims numbers tell you is about what's happening in terms of firings and pink slips. Uh, they don't tell you much about what's happening with hirings. So we know the hiring rate has come way down, but the firing rate's doing next to nothing. So it's an interesting dichotomy. But what have companies been doing? Companies have been doing two things. They've been pushing people from uh, full time to part time. I mean, in the past four months, I think full time employment's down sixty five thousand, and uh, part time is up well over two hundred thousand. So you're seeing this shift from from uh, from from full time to part time, and that's on the household survey. But we also know from the uh, payroll survey uh, that um, there's been no growth. In uh, the work week, uh, all year long. In fact, companies in the past six months have cut the work week. So the work week's going down. So companies are finding ways to rationalize on labor without actually laying people off. Uh, the question is, and hey, how long can you do that? But that's something else that we have to consider is that, you know, when you get the unemployment rate numbers, that comes from the household survey, doesn't come from the payroll survey, but the Bureau of Labor Statistics naturally treat a full-time job the same as a part-time job. So we've already lost full-time workers. They've been furloughed into part-time work. But when you adjust for things like that, and you adjust for, say, the surge we're seeing in multiple job holders, people, this comes down to why are we seeing these strains? Look, Jack, when you, when you stop paying your credit card bill as an American shopper, I mean, things are, Things can't, things can't be that good. Yeah. When you're seeing you're seeing though a boom right now, the past four months in particular, and the number of people taking on more than one job. Let me ask you a question. Do you normally, do you see that when when we're seeing a strong economy, do people actually take on more than one job or is it when things are pretty tough? And so you're seeing a proliferation right now of people taking on more than one job. That's a contraceptive indicator. Um, uh, but mm-hmm. when you take all this stuff together, the decline of the work week, the shift to part-time, multiple job holders, and you, you factor that into the unemployment rate, it's actually at four percent right now, not three and a half. So still low, but not as low. Right. Right. That's exactly right. There's there's um more slack than meets the eye. Mm-hmm. Uh and so what's happening is that companies are finding different ways. To economize on labor than just firing people, and they don't want to fire people not because they become, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, the most generous business owners on earth, but for fear of I lose this person again. Will I find them again in the next cycle? So there is labor market hoarding going on. The question is: Are these corporate CEOs like the little boy with the finger in the dike, and then at some point they got to pull the finger, or basically the unemployment rate? ultimately does not go up as much because
0: of the way that it's constructed, but you still get um labor force contraction. So by go up as much, that would be what, five point five percent, six percent? That would
1: be a big move, right? From three and a half. I mean that would okay. be if you're ta- if you're talking about a recession, that would be a big recession. You're talking six percent. Oh, okay. Uh it could end up being look, it could end up being that it could end up being that way the worst it gets is four and a half to five. That could be and what I'm saying is though so is that but when you really adjust it for more holistically for what's happened in the labor market, like, like like for example, the work week. The work week is a leading indicator, right? That's the, the, the work week is the only, well, along with jobless claims, but the work week out of the out of the official data is the only leading indicator. The work week is because companies typically, they cut hours first and then they cut bodies
0: next. And so I think just looking at that unadjusted unemployment rate, I think at an unemployment rate peaking at 4.5%, In a recession, that would be pretty close to the lowest peak during a recession, right? In in history, pretty close, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, But you know, it's a, it's you know, look in that sense, it's because of uh, what happened with COVID and uh, one of these um, post COVID realities in terms of how it's influenced how companies want to uh, reassemble the decks. Um, Is it normal to be in a in an economy that people call resilient? Uh, where there's been like no growth in the index of aggregate hours worked since January. So past six months, no growth in the overall supply of labor. So you look at, oh, well, look at non-farm payrolls. Yeah. But you don't ask, well, how much of those are part-time jobs? Oh, look at non-farm payrolls, but you don't ask the question. Well, what's, what's happening? So, so we're hiring these people and then we're telling them to, uh, you know, to work half days. What does that say about the overall economy? so uh that's really what i'm talking about that it could be one of these uh i said i'm not a new era person i guess maybe i gotta put a an asterisk next to that that maybe the labor market has shifted in that regard because of the painful memory most business owners have about losing labor and then not being able to find them again however um it could be it could be that we go through this and it's a mild recession which four and a half to five percent of employment would signify in any event uh to me, the bigger question is going to be, how do we get out of it? When I talk about this, nobody believes that. They're still stuck. They're still stuck with a higher for longer and all the inflation. Uh, nobody could believe in. Um, no, nobody could believe in the, in 1989 or 1990 that we'd ultimately get down the funds rate from nine and seven down to three percent. Down to three percent by 1993. I lived through that. Nobody could believe the funds rate would go. Six and a half percent, you know, in early two thousand that we finished the cycle of one percent. Who who believed that? One percent by June of 03. Uh and then in 07, as we got uh, to what did we get to in the funds rate? Five and a quarter. Same thing, same thing. In, in fact, um the Fed was threatening to raise rates in the summer of 08, and Trichet uh, ended up raising rates in the summer of 08. Great timing. Higher for longer, higher for longer, inflation, 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 higher for longer. Who and who thought we were going to finish? That cycle at zero with QE. Who knew what QE was? I used to walk around the the desk, the desk at Merrill, explaining to them what the QE was back in late two thousand and eight. Now kindergarten children know what quantitative easing
0: is. I take it you are bullish on bonds and not terribly bullish on stocks. That is to say, bearish. How bearish are you on stocks?
1: I think that the stock market is going to need the Fed's help, but then the stock market is going to need the bond markets' help. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think the math takes you down to like three, three and a half. On the ten-year note, and takes you down back to like 3,400 or so on the S&P, uh, and that's the math that gets you to an equity risk premium that you can build on for the next bull market. Um, keeping in mind about the timing that bull market start, bull market start, um, fundamental bull market start, seventy percent of the way into the Fed easing cycle, they haven't even eased yet. And when they've, when the yield curve twos tens is 140 basis points. Well, we're still like inverted by what? Like what 70 basis points? Whatever that number is, it changes by the day. So everybody chased this year's rally and it was a nice nice bear market rally, which is what it was, and we always see them. Some of the biggest rallies of all time happened in the context of bear markets. If I added you up all the rally points in late 07, 08 and 09, if I add you all the the rally points, the bear market was October 07 to March of 09, your head would spin over the number of rally points that we had along the way. We had multiple double-digit gains in the S&P 100 and that whole awful um, great recession, uh, financial crisis. So, you know, um, you always want to have your historian hat on because, uh, you know, things,
0: uh, things don't always play out the same,
1: uh, but there
0: are recurring patterns. Well, Dave, thanks so much for being uh, generous with your time and insights. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Evan, for watching. Take care.